Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Trying to get a beer before or after a Nats game and are unable to get the bartender's attention? Well, Walters has solved that problem and more. Welcome to Walters, where Walters 24 self pour beer wall awaits you. Ask your server for a beer card and hit the beer wall, pay by the ounce, and try a few suds before you settle on your favorite. Spend your all-star break at Walters. Juan Soto and the Home Run Derby are on Monday. The All-Star Games on Tuesday. Both get underway at 8 p.m. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Adrian's the lead from first. He runs on two and two, and the pitch swung on. Hit in the air to left center field, deep. Back goes Rosario at the warning track. He's at the wall. He leaps, and it is gone. Goodbye. A home run for Victor Robles. Second home run of the year for Robles. He drives in his 22nd and 23rd runs of the year, and it's a four-run frame for the Nationals. It's Washington four and Atlanta nothing. Now they're ready. Here's the pitch. Swinging a high fly ball to deep right. Back goes Duvall. Looking up. It's going. Going. It is gone. Goodbye. It's his team-leading 20th home run of the year. That's leading 7-3. Two out top of the ninth. Finnegan ready. The kick. Here it comes. Swing and a miss. He struck him out. And a curly W is in the books. Kyle Finnegan with a 98-mile-an-hour heater to finish off Ronald Acuna Jr., and the losing streak ends at 9. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, July 18, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, the 2022 MLB All-Star break has arrived, and I am happy to say that the Nats' nine-game losing streak is over. The Nats are not going into this all-star break on a 10-game losing streak. The Nats won. Let me repeat that. The Nats won on Sunday afternoon. It feels like the first time, doesn't it? Uh, The Nats on Sunday afternoon, a 7-3 win over the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park to avoid a four-game sweep, to snap a nine-game losing streak, and to notch a second win in this month of July 2022. The Nats this month now are 2 and 14. Mark, we need to savor these because we don't know how many more of these we're going to be getting for all kinds of reasons, but the Nats won. We are discussing a Nats victory, and it feels nice to say that to you. And Al, as we surely knew that the winning formula to finally get them back on track against the mighty Braves was to get production, of course, from Victor Robles and A. Ray Adrianza, 
three scoreless innings from Erasmo Ramirez, and then lights out work from the bullpen. That's the formula. That's the winning formula. Why haven't they tried this yet? Why did it take them 94 games to figure that out, that that's the way to beat the Braves? Maybe they can try this again when they meet them in September. I mean, (laughs) of all the games, if you just went into each of the four and said, okay, which is their most likely one to win? This is probably the least likely one just because of all that. They're pitching a bullpen game, facing Spencer Strider, who's been dominant. Didn't matter. And it does show you Truly, in Major League Baseball, anything can happen on any day. The worst teams can beat the best teams. And it's why I've been so shocked at just how many games they've lost within the division, to the Braves, all that stuff. Laws of percentages in this sport, this isn't college football where you've got a you know one double A team trying to beat, you know, Alabama. The best teams still lose 60 games. The worst teams still win 60 games. This should happen more regularly than it has, but it was nice to finally see it come to fruition. Yeah, there's no doubt. That was one of the things about this stretch of 15 losses in 16 games that really stuck out. You just felt like by happenstance, even the worst teams are going to win a few games over a 16-game stretch. And the Nats had won just one game, and it was a one-run win. I mean, it wasn't even like some convincing win. It was a 3-2 win at Philadelphia on July 6th. That had been the Nats' only win since a three-game winning streak, June 26th through the 28th. But yes, the Nats did win on Sunday afternoon. I do think it is nice to not have a 10-game losing streak hanging over you over the course of an all-star break. I mean, we all get that the wins and losses don't matter for the Nats this season, but you know, they are human beings. Like, who wants to go into an all-star break with a double-digit game losing streak? So the Nats do not have that hanging over their head. Uh, Now, they do have like many other things hanging over their head, but that's a different conversation. But with one of those things, right? So, of course, you know, we this weekend had the monumental news in a lot of ways with Juan Soto on Saturday afternoon and what could be coming with the Nats reportedly now entertaining trading him prior to the August 2nd trade deadline. And on the day before Juan Soto participates in the home run derby, we get a Juan Soto home run. And, you know, right now, we don't know how many more of these we're going to have, you know, so I think we need to enjoy these while we have them. And if you're still with the team past August 2nd, then great. But uh, it was good to see this on Sunday afternoon. Juan Soto went one for four with a solo homer. He and a Nats one run eighth smashed a leadoff homer to right field for a 7-3 Nats lead. That is home run number 20 for Juan Soto this season. So he certainly is going into the home run derby hitting home runs and, you know, hitting well. Uh, Juan Soto in the series five for 14 with a homer, a double, three singles and three walks. His OPS for the season is back above 900, 902. It was at 796 through June 22nd. He raised that thing by 106 points in less than a month's time. So Juan Soto on the field is in a very good place right now. And also at the plate in terms of his power, he's got now five homers in his last nine games. And think about a year ago, he goes to Coors Field for the home run derby and jokingly, seriously, somewhere in between, felt that that might help him find his swing again, and it perhaps did over a remarkable second half of the year. Well, he agreed to do the home run derby about a week ago, thinking he might get the same result. And instead, he's going there on about as nice of a power surge as he's been in in a long time. And so who knows what that's going to mean for the event on Monday night and potentially the second half of the year after that. It's been nice to see, even with everything else swirling around him, Give him a lot of credit, the way he can go out there and stay locked in. And that home run is off a tough lefty in Tyler Matzik. He's not getting cheap homers. He's beating some good pitchers. He's pulling the ball into the second deck. He's hitting it the other way when he gets an outside pitch. He looks over the last week like the best version of himself. And that's been great to watch. It also might bring a tear to your eye because you know what it might mean and how 
we may not get to see that for much longer. His slugging percentage for the season is up to 497. His on-base percentage for the season is at 405. So he's right on the doorstep of having a 400-500 season. And his batting average, which remember had been quite low, now up to 250. So all of a sudden now, you know, it's not in that like 220s uh, territory where people are like, how is Juan Soto batting in the 220s? Like, no, I mean, 250, you know, to the extent that you care about batting average is not uh, something that you look at and say, oh, good God, what's going on with this guy? So nice to see this from Juan. And again, we're just going to try to enjoy every uh, moment here and we'll see uh, where things take us come August 2nd. Now on Sunday, Was there any like day two conversation off what broke on Saturday afternoon or was it for the most part business as usual at Nationals Park? Mostly business as usual. There were a couple questions because we talked to Soto after the game when he it's a homer like that. Now he's headed to the all-star game, the home run derby. There were a couple questions thrown in there and he mostly downplayed them and just said like, hey, it's not up to me. This is up to all the business people who are going to make these decisions. My job is to go out there and play hard every single day. So he said all the right things. I will be interested to see what these next two days are like for him because he's going to get it from every angle. It's going to be all over the place. I feel for him. I get it. He turned down a gargantuan offer. And so you have to understand that there's going to be questions that come with that. But he is going to be, if not the center of attention, pretty close to the center of attention at Dodger Stadium. And I hope he handles it well. I think he will because he knows what he's doing. But it's unfortunate that's going to be the dominant storyline now. As a participant in the Home Run Derby and a player on the National League All-Star team, will he do a press conference or at the very least have a session with reporters at some point? Yeah, every All-Star holds a, has a media availability that they're required to participate on Monday. I'm trying to remember, the guys in the Home Run Derby may be in a different one, but he'll either be in a press conference for the Home Run Derby or he'll have his own little desk sort of, or table in a big room where all the all-stars are there together, and he will have a whole lot of people. And the thing about these, uh, (laughs) I used to hate covering these, to be honest, because you have hundreds of media at this event, and it's a big, giant room, and you just have reporters going from one table to the next to ask different players questions. And if you actually stayed just at one table for 45 minutes, you're going to hear the same question 17 times, and this is what he's going to have to deal with. I would not want to be a guy in that spot, even, you know, having a great year with no controversies going on. And you put him into this spot, he's going to be getting it over and over and over. And it's not going to be an enjoyable experience for him. We know that his agent is not shy about holding court with media members. Will Scott Boris potentially hold court with reporters in the Los Angeles area over the next few days, do you think? Well, being that he's based in the Los Angeles area and uh, is a regular presence at Dodger Stadium anyways, and has a whole lot of clients who are appearing in the All-Star Game this week, I would not be surprised if he makes himself available. We'll see how that goes. Scott is never one to turn down an interview request when it uh, is presented to him. Yeah, I was going to say, he's so shy around media members that uh, I just hope he can come out of his shell and you know feel comfortable in being asked all these questions by people. I can guarantee you Sunday night he's spending in front of the mirror rehearsing his lines because he always, they're too good. His quips, his lines, they have to be prepared. There's no way he's coming up with those off the cuff. For me, Bryant, you know, he's tall, he's statured. He's kind of the Sean Connery of Major League Baseball. Okay, He has positional versatility that makes him untouchable. He has Bond-like abilities to create a great middle of the lineup. He's always red hot in the hunt for 
October. <laughs> he's working on his pronunciations, you know, unique New York, making sure he's got everything down just right and he's good to go. Hey, look, whether you like him or not, he is very effective at his job. And uh, this is a huge deal, this Juan Soto situation. So more news may be coming over these next few days. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflict. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of legal headhunters working for you. And that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call him today at 202-486-3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market, and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's the set. Now the pitch. Swing and a line drive center field. Harris coming over. He'll have to play it on a hop. Bell scores from third. Rounding third is Franco. And he is coming in to score on a line drive single into center field. A two-run single for Aray Adrianza. A clutch two-out two-run single. It's the Nationals two and the Braves nothing. So you mentioned the production that the Nats got from the bottom of their lineup on Sunday afternoon. It was odd. Michael Franco, A. Ray Adrianza, and Victor Robles combining uh, for four hits and six runs batted in. Franco was a designated hitter for the game as Nelson Cruz sat out a second consecutive game due to quad tightness. But I think out of all of the things done by all of those guys, 
the Victor Robles home run is a thing that stands out. The guy who has like been zapped of all power finally showed us some power again this season on Sunday afternoon. One for three with a two-run homer. The Nats had a four-run second inning as they finally had a lead in a game for the first time in like forever. And Victor Robles in that four-run second, a two-out, two-run homer to left field to put the Nats up for nothing. He had been down in the count at 1.12. This home run, just Victor Robles' second home run of the season and just his seventh home run since the start of the 2020 season. I mean, it really is remarkable. Victor Robles in the 2019 season, 17 home runs. Robles over the last three seasons now combined seven home runs, but he got home run number two for this season on Sunday afternoon. And you said their first lead in a long time, literally their first lead in a week. It was last Sunday at Atlanta. Remember Lane Thomas's three-run homer? in the sixth inning, gave them a 3-2 lead that lasted for all of two innings. And that's the last time they led in any game. And this time, they went up 4 nothing. lo and behold, in the second inning and actually held it and expanded it the rest of the way. So good for them and good for Victor. He hit that off a 98-mile-an-hour fastball at the knees from Spencer Strider, who we saw him you know a month ago, and he struck out 11 and looked like you know a combination of Peak Steven Strasburg and I don't know, Aroldis Chapman. I don't, it was like, it was insane how good he was. And for them to get to him in this game, I thought was a good sign that they could do that. Good quality at bats from the bottom of the lineup. And for Victor, of course, that's got to feel good to show that, yes, he can still do that. He still has that in his bag of tricks. Now it's just a matter of, trying to find a way to continue to do that on a more regular basis. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where we're going with Victor Robles. He's having a third consecutive underwhelming offensive season. It's hard to believe that, you know, like with Patrick Corbin, all of a sudden Robles is going to turn things around. Like at this point, I think we more or less have to accept this is who he is. So beyond this season, I don't know what you do. I mean, I don't know if you make him a fourth outfielder. I don't know if you say we don't have anything better. And so we're just going to keep going with Robles. But I want to see him do well. I mean, it really would be good if he could get back to his 2019 self with each passing day that becomes less and less likely. But, you know, you see a home run like this one on Sunday afternoon and you're like, you know, what if, you know, what if this guy could get back to what he was a few years ago? Yeah, that's the problem. And it's why he's going to keep getting opportunities because, you know, it's in there somewhere. We saw it in 19. We saw it. There's a reason he was so highly rated all the way up. And it wasn't just internally. That was around baseball. You remember the team's desperately wanted him. The Marlins wanted him for uh, JT Real Muto when Mike Rizzo wouldn't make that trade. Uh, I'm not sure how that worked out in the end. But in the position they're in, you might as well keep giving them opportunities. There's no not hurting you anymore than anything else. And it's not like Lane Thomas has seized a starting job either. He's really struggled here lately. So go ahead, put him out there. And by the time you get to the offseason, you're trying to figure out who's a part of this, who isn't. Unless there's clearly a better alternative, I don't have a Huge problem keeping him around, not necessarily as the bona fide everyday starting center fielder by default, but certainly as a part of the discussion. Josh Bell on Sunday afternoon, one for three with a single and a walk, putting the capper on really an impressive series. It's easy to lose sight of this because the Nats lost three or four and we had everything else going on over the course of this series. But Josh Bell in this series actually had one of the best series that any Nats player has had this season. Josh Bell in this series, nine for 16 with a homer, a triple, two doubles, five singles, and two walks. It's not looking like he's going to get named to the National League All-Star team, unless I guess someone drops out somehow over the next you know few days here. But man, Bell sent a pretty emphatic message in this series of, hey guys, I should have found a way onto the National League All-Star team somehow, some way. He did do a really good job in this series, and he obviously continues to have a really nice season. 
Well, you know, maybe Paul Goldschmidt or CJ Krohn will get food poisoning on the way to LA. And all of a sudden, the spot will open up for Josh. It's unfortunate. But, you know, he's been an all-star before, though, in 2019 with the Pirates. So it's not like this was his one and only shot at it. So maybe that softens the blow a little bit. I'm sure he doesn't mind also getting a couple days off to spend with his family. But he's worthy of it. He has been their best player consistently from start to finish. Obviously, at the moment, Soto is playing extremely well. You know, and Soto is their best player. But performance-wise, from start to finish, it's been Josh Bell. It's been a pleasure watching him and covering him for the last year and a half. We don't know where he's going to be come August 2nd. He is either going to continue to be a part of this team, and it'll be a pleasure to continue to watch him and cover him, or they're going to get something for him. And the way he's performed, hopefully they can get something decent for him because he is worth it. You can't tell me there aren't contending teams out there who wouldn't take that bat in a heartbeat in the middle of their lineup. Absolutely. And he has more than held up his end of the bargain of contract season. The Nats want him to play well so they can get as much for him as possible. He has played well. You know, Nelson Cruz has not had a good season. Bell has. Bell has done what you wanted him to do uh, going into this season. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Beat the heat with Window Nation, which right now is offering a very special deal. Save $200 off any style of window from Window Nation with every two windows that you buy, plus make no payments and pay no interest until 2024, plus you can receive a free entry door with the purchase of a house of windows. Save yourself thousands of dollars on your new windows and on your energy bills, all while upgrading the look and feel of your home. Here's all that you need to do. Go to windownation.com or call 866-90-NATION and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. The average Window Nation installer has over 16 years of experience with over 20,000 windows installed. Your windows matter. Lean on the experts of Window Nation and get yourself the special deal. Again, save $200 off any style of window from Window Nation with every two windows that you buy. Plus, make no payments and pay no interest until 2024 and receive a free entry door with the purchase of a house of windows. Visit windownation.com or call 866-90-NATION and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. That's windownation.com or 866-90-NATION and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Three balls, two strikes. Base is loaded, two down. There go the runners, the pitch. Swing and it's nubbed off the end of the bat. Third base side of the mound. Edwards Jr. has it. He'll lob to first in time for the out. And the side is retired after all that. Edwards Jr. pumping his fist, screaming toward the heavens. He survives the top of the seventh. So the Nats went with a bullpen game for this game on Sunday afternoon. We don't see the Nats do this kind of thing often. It's certainly not something that you can do often because you'd burn out your bullpen over the course of like three games if you did this frequently. But the Nats went with this bullpen approach, given that this was the team's final game before the All-Star break. And the approach ended up working quite well. Six Nats relievers combined to allow three runs in nine innings with eight strikeouts and five of the six relievers pitched well. Erasmo Ramirez started the game Three scoreless innings. Terrific work from him. Jordan Weems then came into the game, and he was the reliever who struggled. Top of the fourth, he allowed three runs, recorded uh, just one out, gave up two doubles, two singles, and an RBI sack fly. But then Steve Ciszek came into the game, one and two-thirds scoreless innings, two strikeouts. Carl Edwards Jr. then came into the game, two scoreless innings, three strikeouts. Andres Machado tossed a scoreless top of the eighth. Kyle Finnegan 
a perfect top of the ninth. We've talked about this. The bullpen lately has been kind of a sneaky positive for this team. Yeah, not every outing is spectacular, but more often than not, the bullpen has done a pretty good job here lately. And here you had on Sunday, it was nothing but bullpen arms. And by and large, you know, like the collective production from these guys, how could you have asked for much more if you're Davey Martinez? Oh, no chance. And we, we think about how often we talked about, oh, well, when you're using five relievers in a game, what are the odds that, you know, all of them or four out of the five are going to be effective? Well, you use six of them here and five of them were not just effective, but like literally put zeros up those five. Weems was the only one who struggled. So I give them a lot of credit. And it starts with Erasmo because you set the tone with three scoreless. They were not going into this expecting for three innings. Keep in mind, he actually threw 30 pitches two days earlier. So it's not like he came into this and could attempt to do anything close to what a starter would do. This was likely two innings, but because he was so quickly efficient and effective, they said, okay, go back for the third. And he goes three innings on 39 pitches. That's great. You set the tone for them. And then to me, the key here, Ciszek and Edwards combining for three and two thirds scoreless. And Carl Edwards had to get himself out of a jam. Well, Seacheck had to get out of the jam that Weems created. And then Edwards had to get out of a jam that he created himself. And you saw real emotion from Carl Edwards when he got that last out and he pounds his glove and he screams out, let's go as he comes off the mound. I mean, we can talk about how dismal this season has been and the nine game losing streak. And you know what? These guys care about what they're doing. I, I give them credit. It would be very easy to just shrug it off and walk off the field. And you could see that there's a lot of professional pride there. They really wanted to win this game and they celebrated afterwards. And I thought Edwards' reaction was appropriate under the circumstances. Well, and we've seen that from him before this season. He pretty clearly is an emotional player. He gets fired up in big moments. I think that's good. I think baseball needs more of that. And, you know, it's nice to see that. I mean, if it's a big deal to him, then it can be a big deal to people watching the game. And as a fan this season, you want to have those moments because we haven't had many of them. So if you can get invested, even if you have to like delude yourself into being invested, I think that's good. So nice to see that from Carl Edwards Jr. Uh, he himself, a, another potential trade chip here for the Nats. The Nats uh, did make uh, a roster move uh, prior to the game on Sunday. Sunday morning, the Nats optioned Hunter Harvey to AAA Rochester, recalled Corey Abbott. Uh, from Rochester. So Harvey, of course, just recently came back from injury. He did struggle on Saturday in that 6-3 loss to the Braves. Uh, Harvey in the game, top of the seventh, gave up two runs on a double, a single, and a walk to give the Braves the 6-3 lead. So Harvey being optioned, is this more like he's being demoted because he struggled on Saturday, or do they just want him to get some work because he hasn't pitched much this season and we're entering the All-Star break here? I think it was kind of like the Mason Thompson move earlier in the week. It was, we need a fresh arm today. Who do we have who has options? And in Harvey's case, because he threw 28 pitches the day before, he wasn't going to pitch at all in this game. He wasn't available for it. So you make that move and you point out, yes, he's been hurt. He's come back from a long-term issue. He's had tons of issues over his career. He'll get an all-star break at AAA. He'll come back pitching a few games. And I would expect him to be back pretty soon after the break. Uh, I think they like him and want to have him out there. But they understood that for this game, they needed another arm. And that was Corey Abbott, who is a starter at AAA. And so... If they needed him, they didn't in the end, but if they needed him, he could go multiple innings. It looked like, and I give Davey credit for this because you do a bullpen game, you say, okay, well, we need to use our bulk guys early. And so you use Ramirez for three, and I thought maybe you just go to Abbott at that point. And instead, he went with some higher leverage guys earlier. You went to Ciszek and Edwards in like the, what, the fourth and the fifth and the sixth innings. And he was saving Abbott, and the reason was 
if somehow the game went extra innings or something crazy happened late, he was going to be the last man standing. And you need to have somebody available today to do that. So that's why he was called up, even though he didn't pitch, even though he was sent back town after the game. Sometimes you just have to, under the circumstances, do that. But we'll see Hunter Harvey again, I think, pretty soon. I think we'll see Mason Thompson again pretty soon coming out of the break. You can always email the podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. We've gotten a lot of good emails about the Juan Soto situation. Here's an interesting question from Jofi Joseph. Given the difficulty of extracting fair value in any Juan Soto trade, is it realistic for the Nats to insist any trade partner take back Patrick Corbin and or even Steven Strasburg? Would shedding one or both of those contracts make sense for the Nats, even if it lessens the prospect hole in any trade? Is that even remotely possible that the Nats' quote-unquote compensation for Soto could be shedding one of those contracts? So somebody else asked me this uh, the day before, sort of similar thing, and they, they pointed out, remember when the Red Sox traded Mookie Betts to the Dodgers, they included David Price, who was a mess at that point and was costing a ton of money. The problem here would be, I would think, is what is the Nationals' reason for doing what they're potentially going to do? It's not about shedding salary. I mean, of course, you'd love to get Corbin's you know, money off the books. You'd love to get Strasburg's money off the books. But you're doing this because you don't have enough prospects in your system. So if including Corbin takes money off the books, but it reduces the quality of young players you're going to get in return, I don't think that's really the right direction for what they need to do. If you're going to make this move, you better get surefire, slam dunk, big time future stars in return as as much as that's possible. And so to me, asking a team to take on that, and how many teams can take on that kind of contract? There aren't very many to begin with. That, to me, kind of defeats the purpose of why you'd make the move in the first place. So my hunch would be in this case, no, because that's not really the motivation. This isn't potentially a move just to get money off the books so they can start over. I think it has more to do with getting quality young players in return because they have so few of them to begin with. Yeah, I agree with you. Juan Soto is maybe the ultimate trade ship. Multiple seasons of team control left for a young generational talent. You don't want to blow that just to get rid of money that you owe to guys who, you know, appear to be shot at this point, right? You like you want this to be your version of like the Herschel Walker trade in the NFL where like one guy is parlayed into countless good to great players for you. Like if you're going to trade Soto, that's what you want it to be. And, you know, with Corbin, he does only have two years left on his deal after this season. So the end is coming. And, you know, it's six years, $140 million. It's a big money contract for sure. There are plenty of contracts, though, that are larger than Corbin. The big albatross is the Strasburg deal. And I don't know if anyone would ever take on him, given that you don't know what his pitching future is. So, yeah, I think you're probably kind of stuck with those guys. Keep the feedback coming. You can email us again, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet us as well, at Nats underscore chat. Uh, you can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. The next installment of the Nats Chat Podcast will be with you for the coming Saturday morning as the Nats will begin their post-All-Star break portion of the season with a trip out west. Three games at the Arizona Diamondbacks, then three games at the Los Angeles Dodgers, as the Nats in the month of August have not one but two trips out west. Not often that you have that, but the Nats uh, do have that uh, to begin their post-All-Star break portion of the season. Uh, All Nationals radio highlights on Nats chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. So we on Sunday night 
had the first round of the 2022 MLB draft. The Nats had the number five overall pick. This was a huge spot for the Nats. For coverage of that, we bring you now special coverage from Tim Shovers and Mark Zuckerman. With the fifth pick in the 2022 MLB draft, the Washington Nationals select Elijah Green, an outfielder from IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida. The Miami Marlins have the next pick. You heard it right there from Commissioner Rob Manfred. The Nats have selected Elijah Green, an outfield prospect from the powerhouse high school that is IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida, home of Paolo Espino, by the way. This is Tim Shovers, joined by Mark Zuckerman. We had a bit of a day-night doubleheader here behind the scenes at the Nats Chat Podcast today. Al through game one. I take the mound for game two. Mark tirelessly behind the plate for all of it. Mark, you and your colleagues have already spoken to Elijah tonight via Zoom. The floor is all yours. Give our listeners a snapshot of the Nationals' top pick. Well, Tim, we got to remember this is an 18-year-old. <laughs> and it's it's funny sometimes, you know, you get used to interviewing young athletes, but when it's draft night, you do have to remind yourself, these are truly kids that you're talking to. And yet, it's hard not to be impressed with him because he's got confidence. He compared himself to Mike Trout. Because he says, I think we both can do everything. He talked about the Nationals' ability over the years and reputation for drafting and developing and turning guys like Bryce Harper and Trey Turner and Juan Soto into stars. He talked himself up as a leader. A lot of stuff there that you would be surprised, like you wouldn't realize that this is an 18-year-old that you're talking to. So there's a maturity there. There's an understanding of like who he is and, and he can be. Now, that said, he's 18 years old, tons of talent. There's no question about that. He might, you know, based on what we've read so far, might have like the best uh, raw skills of anybody in this draft, certainly among the high school players. But when you're 18, you're coming out of high school. It's a longer road to the big leagues. It's going to be about development. And so to me, the most fascinating part of this is can this Nationals organization that we've talked about has not done a great job of developing, especially their draft picks in recent years. Can they now turn this one, in addition to recent draft picks, into star players for them someday? It's going to be a while till we know the answer to that. But, you know, they've got themselves a talented young player. It's now up to them and up to him to turn him into a big-time big leaguer. So a quick research on him. It says, near elite power and speed and a potential center fielder. He's listed as an outfield prospect. Again, this is who the Nats pick, fifth overall in the 2022 MLB draft. Mark, is there already an indication that their hope is for him to be in center field, or are they not locked into that? We want to hear from Chris Klein at the end of the night. We're going to get that after we've already recorded this, so I'll be interested to hear his take on that. But the sense here is that he can be a center fielder. He wants to be a center fielder. Now, he's 6'4", 225 at age 18. That's a big boy. And uh, I know, as you're going to point out, he comes from a pretty athletic family, not necessarily in the baseball world. So what does his body turn into when he's 22, 25, 26? Let's see. But he really likes playing the outfield. He really likes being a center fielder. He's got a very strong arm. He's very athletic. And, you know, you think of Mike Trout, he's a big center fielder. He's not the traditional lanky, go out there and go get it and just run around all over the place kind of center fielder. So if that's who he models himself after, certainly the potential to make it as a center fielder. But what you see historically the Nationals do is they've almost always, when they're drafting position players, they look at catchers, 
They look at shortstops and look at center fielders. And the idea is at a young age, those are the positions they want them to play. And then if over time it becomes clear that they're not really equipped for that, then they move them to a corner position in the outfield, uh, in the infield, or they move a guy away from catcher. That's their mindset. So I think they're going to look at him initially as a center fielder. And if over time, either because of his body or his skills, whatever else requires it, then they'd move him to a different spot. The rules in baseball are different than football and basketball. So help our listeners out here. He's listed as a University of Miami commit. Any issues there or is it full steam ahead towards the pros? So technically speaking, he doesn't have to sign with the Nationals. He could turn down whatever offer they make him. Now, they have they only have a few weeks to do this. Uh, they've moved the deadline way up from when it used to be to try to condense this process, which I think is a good thing. The way this works is there's a slot figure that MLB sets for each position in the draft. And the slot figure for the number five pick is $6.49 million. That doesn't mean they have to offer him that. They can offer more, they can offer less, but that will come out of their total draft player pool. So if they spend more on him, then they have less to spend on others. If they spend less on him, then they have more to spend on others. So he's committed to University of Miami. In theory, he could turn them down and go there instead and re-enter the draft in a few years. But when you go number five in the country and you're looking at getting six, seven million dollars in that range and you come from a family where your father was a professional football player, I think he knows what he's doing here. And I think his intention is going to be to sign. And I don't think the Nationals, it's only happened once in their history that they did not sign their number one pick. And that was Aaron Crow back in 2008. And there were some other issues going on there. So they do a lot of research and prep for this. They typically are not going to draft someone if they have serious concerns about whether he's going to sign or not. Okay. So let's say he signs and he joins the organization. How does this work? What's the first stop? Does he go to West Palm? Does he go to the Fred Nats? Is he, could he be in Wilmington? Where will he be in August and September this year? Yeah. So if he does sign within a few weeks, there's a little bit of season left. And they almost always, especially with high school players, they will send them to West Palm Beach to the uh, Florida Complex League. Most of this year's draft picks will probably start there, uh, along with some other younger guys who need more work or guys who've had injuries, things like that. Because it's late enough in the process, I would guess he wouldn't go to Fredericksburg or any of the single-A affiliates yet. So Brady House last year was a high school pick. He spent the last, you know, August into September in Florida at West Palm Beach. And then this year, uh, he's been at Fredericksburg at low single A. So that's probably the path you're going to look at here with Elijah Green. So we have to remind ourselves, high schooler, 18 years old, this organization traditionally has drafted college players. And so there is a faster track. You can start them at a higher level, move them up the ladder a little quicker. I think in this case, and, and based on what we've heard about him and read about him, there's tons of raw talent there, but there are things he needs to learn, especially as a hitter, and they have to take their time with that. You don't force that issue, not in the position they're in. So my guess is, yeah, he'll get you know the rest of this year in Florida, may even stay there to go to the instructional league in the fall. And uh, barring anything real surprising, my hunch would be that we would see him open next year at Fredericksburg. With Brady House being a high schooler last year as the first round pick, and then going with Elijah Green here. You said that you know they typically draft college players. Do you sense an organizational sea change or just sort of how the cookie crumbled between the two drafts? Yeah, I think it's how the cookie crumbled. Mike Rizzo will always say, and you can take him at his word or not, that they create their draft board, and when it comes time for the draft, they stick with the board. 
they don't make sudden changes at the last minute. So if uh, Elijah Green was number four on their board and the top three players were gone, then they were going to take Elijah Green. Now, if Kevin Parada, the catcher from Georgia Tech, who was the other name we heard a lot about, if he had been the highest guy available to them, they probably would take him as well. And so, you know, you go into it with some ideas of what you're looking for. And there was some thought, let's be honest, that maybe they would go college. The idea being that they're trying to speed along this rebuilding process and a first round pick who comes out of college could be in the big league, say in two years, maybe even be Juan Soto's teammate if Juan Soto's still a national by then. But, you know, really, if they felt like Elijah Green was the best available player, and there was a, a wrinkle in this and that Kumar Rocker went number three to the Rangers. That was the surprise. I'm guessing they may have they may tell us that they thought Green would be gone before it got to them, either going three or four, in which case maybe they do take uh, Parada instead. But once he was there available to them, given the track record and, you know, all the way they've raved about him, everybody's raved about him, his skills. I think it was probably a no brainer for them to take him. What's a realistic timetable for kind of high school players that are drafted high to make MLB? Are we looking 2025, 2026, or is it like it's not even worth commenting on at this point? <laughs> yeah, it's hard. I mean, everybody's different, but they are going to, you know, do it at the pace that seems right for him. When you draft a high school kid, you're acknowledging that it could take a while. You're not going to rush that. You're going to make him earn his way up. Now, they obviously have had kids debut in the big leagues at age 19 and age 20. Those are the exceptions to the rule. Bryce Harper, Juan Soto. That doesn't usually happen. Bryce was an extremely different case because he was young. He got the GED, went to college a year early and all that kind of stuff. So I would say typically you're looking at three to four years minimum. And even then, he's 21, 22. So it's not like he's going to be an old rookie if it takes three or four years. And maybe it takes more. But you know, if he starts next year, at low A, we saw Brady House do that this year. We'll probably finish the year at this point at low A. So maybe it's the same thing one year there. Then the next year started out at high A, and maybe he's good enough to bump up to double A by the end of the year, but maybe he's not. And then year three, you're double A slash maybe triple A. And best case scenario, maybe being called up by the end of that year. But it's probably three years minimum, if not four. All right, last question for you. Uh, usually when you and I speak, I like to give you a trivia question. I have a trivia question here for you. Elijah Green's father, uh, which you'll, I'm sure, hear about the next few days as you read about him, was a NFL tight end. Eric Green, he was drafted himself in the first round, 21st pick overall as a tight end to the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know a little bit about the Steelers. So, Mark, my question to you is, trivia question, Eric Green's first touchdown catch came in week five of his rookie year in 1990 uh, against the San Diego Chargers. The game was played at Three River Stadium. Who threw the pass? This is not a trick question. It was a quarterback. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So for those who don't know, I was born in Pittsburgh. Uh, and even though I grew up in Phoenix, I, I did grow up as a Steelers fan. And 1990 is pretty much in my wheelhouse for when I was very much invested in them. And the only question here, it's one of two guys, and it's a question of when did they make the switch from Bubby Brister to Neil O'Donnell? And so I'm going to say in week five in 1990, I'm going to say it was still Bubby Brister, good old number six. Very good, Mark. Congratulations. That's a heck of a way to close out the uh, first half of the season and head on to a quick vacation for the All-Star break. I'm 
a little proud of myself for knowing that. I, uh, I'm not proud of the fact that I will admit that I once owned, probably around that time, 1989, 1990, I owned a number six Bubby Brister Steelers jersey. You didn't even hem and haw right there. That was very good. So uh, <laughs> enjoy your all-star break, and uh, we will talk to you Friday night in Phoenix, Arizona. Hi, I'm Jack McKeon with the Washington Nationals. And with, and with the 45th pick of the 2022 Major League Draft, the Washington Nationals select Jake Bennett, a left-handed pitcher from the University of Oklahoma. The Miami Marlins have the next pick.